Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith. And on this episode, I'm joined by Minister Karina Gould to talk about a range of issues, really, but mostly focused on global vaccine equity and international climate financing. Karina is easily one of the hardest working ministers you will meet. If there's a report on a file she is working on, she will have read that report. And while international development doesn't always steal national headlines here in Canada, there are few more important ministries when one considers the global challenges we face, beating the pandemic through mass vaccination and preventing catastrophic and runaway climate change. On top of all that, there are any number of crises around the world that Minister Gould must actively respond to, and somehow she finds time to be a young mother over and above everything else. There's no doubt she will be in politics for a long time if she wants to be, and she, I think, will play a leading role as a younger generation of representatives increasingly take on substantive roles in government. Karina, thanks so much for joining me. I'm so happy to be here, Nate. So you will remember this because it was only months ago. There was a mad scramble here in Canada, people trying to find an appointment for a vaccination, and there was a lot of angst. You go back months earlier, not so very long, but months earlier, and there was a worry that we wouldn't have enough vaccines in this country. And now we have not only of eligible Canadians over 80% vaccinated with a first dose, and we're getting closer to that with a second dose, but two months ahead of schedule, we have more vaccines for eligible Canadians than we need, and we are in a good place in Canada as it relates to vaccine supply. The same cannot be said for the rest of the world. And so we have said rightly that none of us are safe until all of us are safe. And we've done some good things in terms of delivering vaccine supply, excess vaccine supply for the COVAX facility, funding for the COVAX facility. So walk me through what we've done for those who are unaware. And then let's get to what more needs to be done. So, I mean, first of all, this is the largest immunization campaign in world history, which is a monumental task to undertake. And COVAX was set up to try and provide some of that equity, recognizing that wealthier countries would be able to purchase vaccines in a way that lower income countries wouldn't be able to. And so we were one of the founding members of COVAX and we were actually the first to put money on the table. Like we contributed as Canada, the first $25 million to get COVAX up and running. And since then we've contributed $545 million to COVAX, which has enabled us to purchase on behalf of COVAX somewhere in the order of 60 to 70 million vaccines for the developing world. COVAX was kind of running smoothly until India hit their their big surge in the spring. And most of the vaccines that COVAX had procured were coming from the Serum Institute in India. And I think we can all understand uh, that India decided to put export restrictions on their domestic vaccine manufacturing because they were having a huge, huge surge in India. And so that meant that COVAX hit a bit of a snag. And so their goal, and they're still on track, is to deliver 2 billion vaccines around the world by the end of this year. And they're really starting to pick up because they've diversified their manufacturing base and we're starting to see increased deliveries. We've also seen other countries step up. The United States, for example, has given a lot of vaccines to COVAX to distribute. Canada, so in addition to our financial resources, We've also committed 30 million 
actual doses to COVAX, 17.7 million AstraZeneca doses that were part of our bilateral agreement with AstraZeneca for Canada. And so we are just finalizing that agreement with COVAX. And really soon, there's are going to start to arrive in countries. And like, when I say really soon, I'm hoping like within the coming days uh, is what we're hearing. So that's exciting. And then 13 million that remained from the self-financing agreement that we had from COVAX that we've purchased on behalf of Canada, but we've redonated back to COVAX. And then we are also working through doses that have arrived on Canadian soil that are access to the needs of the Canadian population. And so those we're working through right now in terms of making those donations. Some of those are going bilaterally. So for example, 82,000 doses went to Trinidad and Tobago last week. And so we're just working through with different partners, uh, different countries to see when and where we can send those excess doses. So yeah, Canada is actually one of the highest per capita donors, both in terms of money, but also in terms of actual physical doses that are going out around the world. Because of the diversified portfolio approach that Anita and Ann talks about, we've procured millions, hundreds of millions of doses that we won't need. And some like AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson just haven't been part of the mix in as serious of a way here in Canada. Johnson & Johnson really not at all. And AstraZeneca was for a time and, and no longer. I get emails from the high commissioner from Bangladesh, as an example, saying, donate us your AstraZeneca if you're not using them. And so when you look at the hundreds of millions of doses that we've procured that we are not likely to use domestically, is there a sense of just how many doses we are going to be in a position to contribute? We obviously need to maintain enough supply for five plus and then for younger Canadians as those approvals occur. But we also know today that we have far more on the books, at least, than we're going to need. But what I would say is that some of those on the books are not actual doses yet, right? So, you know, that includes our bilateral agreements with Novavax, with Sanofi, with Medicago that are still going through clinical trials and approvals. And so, you know, it's anticipated that those doses will eventually come online, but, but they haven't yet. Right. So I distinguish those from like doses in hand, right? right. Those are kind of like off in the distance. And so, you know, they still have to go through a process before we get there. I think the bilateral deal that we have with AstraZeneca, um, you know, we had for 20 million doses for AstraZeneca. Um, those have now been donated, right. Right? right? The COVAX ones. So these are all like doses in hand that, we have some doses that we have, for example, like with Pfizer and Moderna, they might have been destined to come to Canada next year, right, as opposed to this year. So again, those aren't really like doses in hand that we have to donate now. And so I think like, you know, we've got the 30 million that we've donated and then there's still questions about Johnson & Johnson, um, but hopefully we'll have something to say about that really soon. And then the other ones are like, they're just not doses that actually exist yet. Right. Uh, yeah. Although Novavax, hopefully soon. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's it. It's like all of these ones are hopefully soon, right. but I don't want to say like we're in a position to donate or not, or take them or whatever until they're like it materializes. Yeah. They're like real, you know? And I don't normally have ads on this podcast, but I did speak to David Morley, who is one of the kindest, most thoughtful people you will meet. And as the head of UNICEF Canada, I know there's a partnership with the Canadian government and UNICEF Canada for this Give a Vax campaign, and we'll match up to $10 million. 
do you know how much is con- contributed to date and how much room there is to give so I can encourage people to give? Well, I would just say give because if we go beyond $10 million, there's a good chance that we'll increase how much we're going to match. So please, please give a vax. It's such a great way. You know, as you said, Nate, from the beginning, like we're not going to be safe here until everyone is safe. And, you know, when we look at Canada's numbers where we're at over 80% first dose and climbing towards second dose, I mean, there's still countries in the world where they haven't even cracked 3%, right? So this is super important. And, and UNICEF, people don't necessarily know this, is like the logistics arm of the United Nations. They're procuring all the vaccines, all the syringes, all the needles, all of the stuff needed to vaccinate people uh, for COVAX. And so if if we meet our goal where we raise $10 million and the government matches it up to, of $10 million, so $20 million total, that uh, is going to immunize 4 million people around the world. So, you know, it'd be great to blow that out of the water, but it's it's also just like if you have contributed to this world, you know, this global immunization campaign by getting your vaccine here at home, but now you can also contribute by making a donation to help save someone else's life around the world. To put a question in a slightly harder way, but on the same topic, $545 million to COVAX, that's great. But given the importance of this issue of ensuring that we're all safe, isn't it important that we put more money on the table through COVAX, number one, but also when you look at the bottleneck of manufacturing and and you highlight the challenge in India as an example, there have been increasing calls, including from the U.S. administration under Biden, at least, to say we need to eliminate all barriers to vaccine production. And there's a conversation I've had with Paul Farmer, I know you've spoken to him as well, but about the TRIPS waiver. And do you see movement in the Canadian government's position to get to a place at the WTO and to say, let's build vaccine production around the world? Yeah, so I think it's important to clarify, like the government of Canada has never been opposed to the waiver, right? Like that's actually a really important position. And Mary Ng, who's the Minister of International Trade, has been phenomenal on the world stage within the WTO to try and bring everyone together. And she's been working with Ngozi, the director general of the WTO, hosting meetings on a monthly basis to try and bring both sides of the issue together to say, can we find, you know, common ground? Can we find a solution? And like, I think actually under her leadership, it's, it's been, it's been really productive. It's hard to come to a consensus at the World Trade Organization, but from our perspective in Canada, we're saying, what can we do to eliminate those barriers. TRIPS is is one of them, but it's not the only one. I mean, there's knowledge sharing, there's tech sharing, and those are some of the really tricky ones because it's one thing to say, hey, here's the recipe. But if you don't actually have the expertise to, to build it out, that is really difficult. So part of what we're doing too, through COVAX, through the WHO, through CEPI, which is the Center for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, which is another organization that we helped fund that actually helped coordinate a lot of the research and a lot of the sharing that developed many of the different vaccines is saying, okay, what else can we do on tech and knowledge transfer? right? Because that's another big area. And then the U.S. has also put some money on the table to help develop manufacturing capacity or different pieces of the manufacturing process in Africa, right? So there's conversations happening in Egypt and Tunisia and South Africa to really diversify the manufacturing base. You know, sometimes people are like, well, do we need all this manufacturing capacity? Because like we had enough vaccines before and there was no issue. Well, the fact of the matter is, is like we have to vaccinate 11 billion people, right? And we actually don't have 
the capacity right now to vaccinate 11 billion people based on the manufacturing capacity that we have. And there's a very good likelihood that we're going to have to continue to vaccinate people with regards to COVID, whether it's boosters or just children as they get older. So there's going to be a need for more manufacturing capacity. So whether that's here in Canada or whether that's in Africa, the world can use more, right? And so we're working to try and develop that capacity and provide that support as well. Yeah, it seemed really important to see Francois-Philippe Champagne out and making investments in the Canadian context for domestic vaccine manufacturing capacity. But I think we should partner with other countries as much as possible and put more money on the table is what it comes down to, to say we'll build up that production capacity around the world as well to ensure vaccine equity in this crisis, but also in future crises. And when we talk about future crises or a crisis that will be much more of a crisis in the future, but is already upon us. Yesterday, the IPCC issued its sixth report, and we knew much of this from the one and a half degree special report, but this reconfirms much of it. And Elizabeth May went at me on Twitter to say, well, when will you not run for a party that pretends net zero by 2050 is meaningful? And I said, net zero by 2050 is meaningful, My takeaway from the report is not that it's not because the IPCC, in fact, confirms that it is, but immediate action is required. And too many governments and companies, governments in particular, are committing to net zero by 2050, but not also at the same time committing and then enacting short term immediate policies to deliver emission reductions. We've come a long way, I would say, for the first time in my lifetime, we've seen a federal government that has taken this issue seriously. Projected 2030 emissions were 850 megatons when we took office in 2015. They're now, if policies hold, 468 megatons. That's not where we need to be, but it's very far from where we were. And we've committed to do more. Again, to get to the international conversation, though, because this is the worry. I'm more optimistic about our ability in Canada to get where we need to get. I'm quite pessimistic when I look at the status quo around the world that the world is going to get to where we need to get. And this is a global challenge. There is a conversation that started at Paris about this 100 billion U.S. fund per year for international climate financing. And this touches on Wilkinson's portfolio, but also yours. And where are we at with our obligations? And, And do you think we are meeting our moral obligations to the world right now. Oh, there's so much I want to say on climate change. <laughs> you got you. The floor is yours. I know. I know. But at, like, like just domestically really quickly, because I think this is important. Like I was at DeFasco in Hamilton, one of the biggest steel producers in Canada. And we announced $400 million to basically get rid of the Coke ovens over the next eight years. It's the equivalent of taking a million cars off the road every year we are doing these things at home, right? Like I, I also have confidence that we're like, we are going to meet our targets here at home because we're making those investments. And that's, that's a huge, huge investment. But I think that climate like COVID is a global issue and you can't just deal with it in one country. You have to have a global response. And I had the amazing opportunity to talk with Mary Robinson last year about this and her takeaway was that hopefully the lessons we've learned from COVID, we can apply to climate change. And she was saying that the lessons that she thinks, and I think we've learned from COVID, although not everyone has clearly learned them, is that individual action matters, collective action matters, science matters, 
and governance matters and who governs matters. And that it needs all of that to respond to COVID. And you can apply those same lessons to climate change. What we've done over the past year, which I'm really excited and proud of our government for doing, is we doubled our climate financing over the next five years. So from 2016 to 2021, we committed $2.65 billion. And for the next five-year period, it's $5.3 billion. And the kind of presidency of the COP26 had asked G7 countries to double their climate financing, and Canada has done that. We're going to be able to have a greater focus on adaptation as well as mitigation. But again, it's like we can do everything we need to do here at home, but if we're not doing our part internationally, we're not going to be able to solve the climate crisis. With regards to the $100 billion, it's a bit debatable as to like what exactly Canada's fair share of that is, but we're a lot closer now <laughs> than we were in the previous five-year period. And I hope that what we are starting to see is that, you know, I mean, here in the GTA, we're experiencing a very wet summer, right? It's not typical. Like this is, this is part of climate change, but out West, they're experiencing an incredibly dry summer. And we're seeing that in the forest fires. I mean, we're seeing the floods in Europe. I was just in Cox, well, just, I was virtually in Cox's Bazaar this morning and they are dealing with the worst monsoon season ever right? We're experiencing these things. And I think that Canadians are there in terms of what we need to do here at home, but we need to keep building on what we can do internationally as well. And when we talk about fair share as it relates to climate change, they can be really complicated conversations because they require addressing historical considerations around equity yeah. and fairness and who's been advantaged by benefiting from fossil fuels. And so I spoke to Yuri Regal, one of the lead authors of the IPCC reports, and he said, you know, there is no science-based target for a national government. There's a global science-based target, right. but then you have to bring these other considerations to bear and then you have to manage the politics in your country and you have to do everything that you can. And if you're a country like Canada, yes, you should go beyond the science. And well, we've had that conversation about our 2030 target. I think we ought to ratchet that target up along the way between now and 2030. But on the international side, at least in relation to that $100 billion fund, there aren't necessarily the same considerations as I understand it, because they're all developed countries committing to this fund. So they've all benefited historically from fossil fuels. And is it not just a straightforward per capita assessment or is it a we're the 10th largest world economy so there's a the economic clout consideration what do you think the fair share would be of of Canada in that 100 billion dollars so Canada's fair share is supposed to be about 4 billion dollars of that right but it's not supposed to be just government it's also supposed to include like private sector and right. as well right that's kind of one of the complicated parts of the 100 billion is it's it's not just ODA it's supposed to include like a, a broader response from the developed world so i can only really speak for the government piece right. of it because like if you think about it i mean like the private sector and the developed world has benefited tremendously from fossil fuels and you know other carbon intensive industries so that's that's kind of where it gets a bit complicated so that's where like we're we're pretty close now from like a government perspective in terms of what the government's fair share is. I think the point is that whether it's $100 billion, whether it's $300 billion, is that this is the fight of our generation right now. And, you know, the IPCC report that came out yesterday, I think just 
reminds us that 2030 is nine years away, right? We have to be doing these things. And we also have to be working with other countries to enable them to make the changes that they need to make or so that they don't start using carbon intensive industries as they industrialize or as they are developing their economies. And so how can we work with them? I mean, one of the like really important initiatives that Jonathan Wilkinson is leading and I support on is the Powering Past Coal initiative, right? Because coal is one of the primary energy sources for a lot of developing countries. And so how do we get countries past coal and how do we get them into cleaner, more sustainable energy uses? And so this $5.3 billion, how can we use that effectively to both reduce emissions? But then the other part that you were talking about is the equity piece is also enable countries to adapt to a changing climate, right? And so this is a kind of an exciting piece, I think, with regards to agriculture, for example. 50% of the world's small share agriculturalists are, are women, And they're going to need the inputs, the resources, the support to adapt to a changing climate, to prevent desertification, to make different choices that will hopefully enable them to be more prosperous, you know, empower them, but also help fight climate change at the same time. So I think, you know, from our perspective, the doubling of our climate financing, which is a huge amount of money, it's an additional two and a half billion dollars, right, for international assistance, which, you know, I know in the grand scheme of things isn't not the end all be all, but it's still a big amount of money, right? And it's a big increase for our official development assistance, I think demonstrates Canada's commitment that like we're, we're in this fight and we're in it on a global level as well. I think the challenge is, and it's not dissimilar to the challenge around our international support around vaccine equity, or really development assistance writ large, we are in the game, but not enough and constrained in some cases by domestic politics, because you have opposition politicians that will often say, look after seniors here at home first and foremost, and then just politicize development assistance in, I think, an unfortunate way. And when it comes to vaccine equity, I think we should be spending more money to build that production capacity elsewhere. But when, when you look at the climate financing side, if our contribution is 4 billion of the 100 billion, and it's that's an annual number, and it's an American dollar figure, then the 5.6 is fairly small, I would say, in comparison to what we should be putting out. I take the point government versus the private sector. My answer would be, shouldn't we pay up front and then recoup it from the private sector at home if they're not going to pony the money up? Because Time's wasting. And so I think we have to confront the domestic politics in some ways. And in one case, we might get criticized for deficit spending. I would say as it relates to climate action, let's deficit spend. Let's not be shy about deficit spending. These are short-term expenses. They won't be ongoing in perpetuity in the same way when our increase for old age security goes up. That'll be a, uh, in perpetuity, long-term significant cost for the treasury. So if we can get our heads around the need to deliver really sizable short-term action and then bring Canadians on board. And I wonder, because you are more familiar with the details of some of the impact of this international climate financing, if there are examples that you think are compelling to people, whether they're nature-based solutions or the the women's empowerment that that you just mentioned, are there examples that you have found in your conversations that that do address the domestic politics to say, yes, we can spend more and, and we've got support for spending more because people support these kinds of initiatives. Yeah. And maybe just to your first point on the domestic politics, I'll just go back to the beginning of COVID where, you know, the conservative development critic said, yeah, you should spend money on COVID, but don't increase the official development assistance. So like take it from somewhere else, right. To respond to COVID. And my position was actually, no, 
we have to continue to spend on the development priorities because they don't go away. And whatever we do for COVID should be an addition, right? And so we mobilized an additional $2.5 billion last year for the COVID-19 response. And so I think there, <laughs> there is you know, a domestic element that we, we have to, to deal with here. I think that honestly, like I said, with Mary Robinson's lessons, I feel like that's what most Canadians get, right? Like they understand that these are global issues that require global solutions. And certainly when it comes to climate, I think they have a real understanding that like this isn't unique to Canada. In a way, I think Canadians didn't think we'd be affected by climate change. And now we're starting to feel it, particularly in the last five to 10 years, as weather patterns have changed, we've had increased fire seasons, the increased flooding. And so we often say that the developing world is on the front lines of climate change. And it is. And in many ways, they have less resources to respond to emergencies than we do here. But I think, you know, we are all experiencing the impact and this is not something that we can respond to on our own. We all have to do our part as individuals, as collectives, uh, both in our country, but also around the world. But there's a lot of secondary or tertiary impacts to climate change, right? I mean, we can think of the immediate natural disaster, the impact on crops. The Horn of Africa last year at the same time as COVID was going through a huge locust crisis as well as a drought, you know, so there's these secondary and tertiary impacts. So it's not just the natural disaster, it's the impact on the food system and then what that means for the global supply chains. But then there's also migration issues, right? I mean, the UN had that really interesting case was it just last year where an individual from a Pacific Island said like, I am a climate refugee that like my Island is, is disappearing under, under the water. Right. And so there are, whether it's because of droughts, desertification, increased fires, the changing climate is, is going to impact people where they are and where they want to be because they might not be able to live where they are right now. And so there's, there's many different facets to climate change and the different issues and areas that it's going to impact. And I find that mostly Canadians are there. Certainly there are some that are not, but I think most of them are there and they see that there's you know a real need to take action. They don't necessarily know what that action is. And I think that's where you know governments and experts and scientists come into play to figure out what those things are and how we can work with industry to make sure that we are reducing those emissions and come up with viable alternatives as well. And so I feel like Canadians are there for the most part. I think that, and you probably felt the same way, like climate change was important in the 2015 election, but it wasn't the top issue. In 2019, it was the top issue, right? It was the top issue. And And you can see a move because we went from battling tooth and nail just to get a very modest price on pollution. Yeah. And then how easily the public responded when we said we were going to ratchet it up to $170 by 2030, that the public conversation domestically has moved significantly towards the evidence in a really positive way. And I hope that when you lay out those lessons learned that can be applied to climate change, that we take that seriously and that we add an additional lesson, which is that governments can really bring a level of determination and scale of spending and effort to respond to a crisis that we have seen in fits and starts in response to climate change. And I think there has been under this government, a sustained effort, 
but it hasn't yet been at the scale that is required, I don't think. So one area I've bugged you about a lot that touches on both these big conversations around climate action and the COVID crisis is a One Health approach, because we find that, in fact, climate action is a serious way to prevent a future pandemic. And we can actually tie these crises together on the evidence. We need to transform our food systems. You mentioned international climate assistance in agriculture. And, and there are so many things we need to do to prevent future pandemics, but also to basically treat them as twin crises, because we, we know we need to prevent future pandemics, but we also know we need to tackle climate change. And animal health, human health, and environmental health are all interconnected. I read about these things, but you are actively involved in conversations at the international level around a One Health approach. And it seems like the world is moving mm -hmm. in this direction and that we are nearing a place through the G20 where there's going to be a clear recognition and governments hopefully will take those international commitments and then move to domestic action. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of interesting conversations going on. And I actually wrote an op-ed about this in the spring of 2020, thinking about the encroachment of humans on the natural world and the interaction between civilization and wild. And I mean, if you think about it, that the pandemics that we've had have mostly been zoonotic diseases, right? So diseases that originated in animals and have jumped to humans. So HIV, Ebola, H1N1, bird flu, you know, here, here we are, right? SARS and, and COVID. So, you know, there's, there's a, a long history of this and there's a lot of common science and thought right now about how the health of the planet is connected to, to human health. And these conversations are all happening at the international level at the food system summit, for example, that will be held um, at the United Nations this September. I was at the pre-summit virtually in Rome. These were the conversations that were going on. It's the connection between nature, biodiversity, climate change, and human health. And how are we making these links? I mean, one of the things, Nate, that I was shocked by when I came into this portfolio and was thinking about our next iteration of international climate finance was that in 2015 in Paris, the conversation between nature and climate change and biodiversity were separate, right? It was like you talked about climate change, but like, why would you talk about the environment and biodiversity? But for this COP, it's like, oh, no, these are actually integral to each other. And it's funny that we didn't connect them before. There's this cartoon that I go back to where it's these three like tsunami waves coming at this population. There's a little air bubble. The tiny one is COVID-19. Like the middle one is climate change. And then the big one is the collapse of biodiversity. And this little dialogue bubble is like, oh, geez, like can't wait to get through COVID-19. Then everything will be fine. Right. Obviously, I don't want to diminish COVID-19 because it is it's had a huge impact and, and people have lost lives and, and livelihoods. But we are also facing some really big issues on the horizon that, that we have to deal with. And they're so connected, right? Like if, if we don't deal with the fight against climate change and we don't recognize the loss of biodiversity, that's going to have a huge impact on, on human health and, and human lives. And, you know, it was earlier this year that the WWF released that, you know, we've lost 70% of the world's wildlife in the last 50 years because of human action, right? So, and you might've seen two weeks ago, there was a, another report released that the Eastern Amazon now releases more carbon into the atmosphere than it retains. And so maybe going back to your last question on, I think there's also work that we can do in terms of conservation and renaturalization that also speaks to Canadians. I mean, I was in Windsor yesterday announcing that federal government Parks Canada and the city of Windsor have come to an agreement to hopefully make the Ojibwe Park a national urban park. And people were so happy and so excited because like 
love our nature in Canada and we want to protect urban nature, but I think we need to be doing the same thing for other vitally important biospheres around the world. I think that is a a very good way to translate that really necessary international action to domestic politics and to build support. The number of emails we received around protecting the Amazon, if we tied some, even a modest amount of our international climate finance to particular initiatives like that, I think it would go a long way to build support such that we could continue to contribute more. And on the flip side, a difficult conversation that needs to be had that I'm I'm glad these conversations are starting to be tied together in this coming COP, but sustainable protein, the way we produce food, the commercial wildlife trade, when you look at pandemic risk, but also when you look at methane emissions and cattle in Canada and elsewhere, when you look at the Amazon and the destruction of the Amazon for the purpose of agriculture, specifically livestock. And I do worry that we aren't having that conversation fast enough. When you read the United Nations Environment Program report, and they say one of the main disease drivers is increased human demand for animal protein. And it's an incredibly hard political conversation to have. Easier for me in some ways, because I'm a hippie vegan to begin with, but it's it's <laughs> a, a, a hard conversation to have to say we need to change something so integral to our lives, which is our food habits and and our eating habits. And in some cases, livelihoods. There's also an equity piece there, Nate, though, too, right? I mean, there's an equity piece for people who don't have access to food, right? And so- Oh, completely. completely. You know, and, yeah. And, yeah, right. And so, I mean, I think that's important. These conversations are happening within the UN Food Systems Summit, but it's it's not this protein is good and this protein is bad. It's how do we make things more sustainable- in general, right? Yeah, I think I think that's got to be the goal. I mean, yeah. certain proteins are obviously less sustainable than others. And so it really is about having that conversation around how do we make the total system sustainable? And it, it does lead to some really hard conversations, which is why when you look at the total package of climate measures in Canada, as an example, we've done so much in so many sectors. And I would say that the world has increasingly identified, you know, whether it's transportation, whether it is buildings, and, and there's a clear consensus. And then even the IPCC, they, they don't identify agriculture in quite the same way, the politics are hard. It's just, I think, a reality that we're eventually going to have to get to a place. And probably innovation is the better answer. And we there put a quarter of a billion dollars into plant-based food innovation, and that's good. And so there are positive steps for sure. But that, again, on the twin crises, it's interesting how the food system touches both. And it's not really an active part of our our dialogue in, in, in a way that it should be, I think, domestically, hard politics. Okay, so speaking of hard politics, and this is probably my last question, you in your portfolio... I've thrown a bunch at you, big picture questions around international climate finance and vaccine equity and food policy and one health approach. And yet at the same time, there are more focused crises that happen all the time around the world. And Israel-Palestine has been ongoing for many, many years, but there was an incredible flare up and Canada responded. You responded with $25 million. The situation a year ago with the port explosion in Lebanon, you delivered, I think, an $8 million in matching and then $30 million in additional humanitarian assistance. The situation in Ethiopia is ongoing and worries about a famine are are incredibly credible. And I don't know all that we have done on that file, but I know you've been incredibly engaged on, on that file as well. Are there particular issues that you are most seized with right now? That would be the first part of the question. But the second part of the question is, do you find it hard just to keep up with the pace of all of these issues that are going to be thrown at you in the course of your portfolio? Because it's not a portfolio that I'm going to knock on a door and say, we deliver $30 million to Lebanon, and that's going to deliver a ton of votes. So you know, the childcare work that Ahmed is doing probably is more visible. But yours requires a much more sustained, focused 
just to keep up with everything. There's a lot going on in the world. Uh, (laughs) 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 That's the right answer. You're like, no shit, Nathaniel. There's a lot going on in the world. (laughs) There's definitely a lot going on in the world. And uh, there's, there's a lot of really dire things happening in there. There are things that I'm working on that don't make the news here, right? That we're not focused on. So, I mean, Ethiopia is, you know, an area of the world in Tigray and and what's happening there is something that, you know, I'm engaged on in on a daily basis, talking with counterparts and particularly different UN agencies and NGOs that are working there and, and trying to figure out what Canada's response is. We've we provided an additional $43 million in humanitarian assistance so far this year, but there are five and a half million people on the brink of starvation, right? So it is, it is a dire, dire crisis. Um, I was virtually this morning in Cox's Bazaar, you know, talking about the Rohingya crisis. Again, you know, a million people who are in very dire straits right now, you know, understanding and appreciating all that the government of Bangladesh has done, but it's still a very challenging situation. Venezuela, I hosted the International Donors Conference on uh, Venezuelan migrants and, and refugees back in June. And there are five and a half million Venezuelans in the region. It's the second largest displacement crisis following Syria. And it's on track to become the largest by the end of the year. And that's not even talking about inside of Venezuela. Like there's Venezuela is such a tragedy because there is no conflict in Venezuela. And yet millions of people are hungry and the malnutrition crisis is out of this world. Right. And it's because of a, a lack of good governance in the country. Right. It is a completely political crisis and people are, are going hungry. Like those are just some of them. But then, you know, I like in the Sahel or in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Yemen, you know, the Middle East, like there's there's a lot going on in the world right now that uh, my department is working on and, and responding to. And yes, it is certainly a challenge to uh, keep up with with everything that's going on. But we have incredible officials at Global Affairs Canada who uh, do remarkable work every single day, both in the field and from headquarters. I think we will be having something to say very soon with regards to the hunger crisis that's happening around the world. So um, unfortunately, there are twice as many people facing acute food insecurity this year as there were last year. And, you know, we had very lofty objectives as a world uh, to meet the UN Sustainable Development Goals by 2030. We're nine years away, and we've actually seen a regression of about two decades. For the first time in 30 years, we've seen more people in extreme poverty over the past year and a half, which is not a trend that we've been having for the past 30 years. So yeah, there's there's a lot going on. But we're doing our best to respond in the capacity that we have, but also working with like-minded. One of the kind of cool things that happened over COVID was I convened uh, on a monthly basis a group of like-minded donor country development ministers. And we talk on a monthly basis, something we wouldn't have done pre-COVID, but we can because we have an hour-long conversation and we talk about some of the big issues, climate change, girls' education, Uh, health system strengthening, uh, you know, to name a few financing for development in the era of COVID. And we talk about those things and we share and we, you know, think about how we can collaborate more to respond um, in, in what is a really difficult time. You have all of that on the go. You are also a young mother. Being a a young parent is hard. And on top of all that, the, the obligations that you have, in addition, it, I think it's great. You are in cabinet because I want more people in cabinet 
who are as passionate about climate change as I am. But I think it's great you are in the portfolio that you are in particular because you are on every issue when I reach out to you, you are already seized with the issue. And, and I'm thankful for that. It makes my advocacy much easier <laughs> as far as it goes. And to close out on positive news, you mentioned girls' education and capacity building. The Prime Minister spoke previously, this is an unrelated conversation around sending fighter jets into fight ISIS. And he said, no, we're going to contribute what we are best at. And I actually think what Canada is best at is capacity building on the democratic side in many respects. But also when you speak to UNICEF Canada, they emphasize the Canadian knowledge base and capacity on education. And that level of capacity building, I hope in the years ahead, we really bring to bear both to help train judges, but also to train educators. And when you look at the recent commitments to the Global Education Fund, let's close on a positive note, because I actually think we are meeting our commitments in a serious way to girls' education, to empowering women around the world and girls around the world. And let's close with some really good news. Sounds good. Well, on that, since we introduced our feminist international assistance policy, we went from having under a third of our programming that dealt with gender equality and now 95% of our programming does. And so we're actually the top country when it comes to funding like women's rights, but also gender equality. So that's really positive. And then in uh, July at the G7, the prime minister announced our contribution of $300 million to the Global Partnership for Education, 50 million of which will be geared towards girls' education. And, and this help builds off of our $400 million commitment to girls' education around the world that we spearheaded and launched at the G7 that we hosted in Charlevoix. And I think this is actually a really neat moment of Canadian leadership because with the exception of the U.S. G7 that we won't talk about because it didn't really happen, all of the other ones since have carried forward with girls' education. And that's a tribute to Canadian leadership, but absolutely capacity building, training, education, empowerment. It's what we do well around the world. And uh, I think I would love for Canadians to come visit with me and, and see the work that Canada is supporting, because I think it would make them incredibly proud to know um, what we're doing to support the poorest, the most vulnerable, and to increase human rights and particularly women's rights around the world. Great. Well, I appreciate the time when it's all safe to do so. We're going to have a joint mission to Bangladesh both on the Rohingya issue, but also in relation to trade. And, you know, Cox's Bazaar is fine virtually, but it's one of the most beautiful beaches in the world. So we, we will go in person. Okay, sounds good. I'm looking <laughs> forward to that. All right. Thanks, Greta. Good to see you. Thanks, Nate. Thanks for joining me on Uncommons. You hopefully got a sense of both the breadth of the minister's portfolio, but also the level of depth that Karina brings to bear on those responsibilities. Our next episode will also be arriving in relatively short order, so keep a lookout, where I'll be joined by Cindy Blackstock to discuss reconciliation and the court battle around compensation for First Nations kids. As always, and shamelessly, leave a positive review on your platform of choice, and otherwise, until next time.